This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Welcome to a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as the announcer just said, this is the word to stand on for life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, life questions, whatever's going on in your heart or mind, I'll do the best that I can. And all you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel San Antonio mobile app and send them. If you are driving in your car on this beautiful day, then the safest way to do it is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Monday, we got some stuff going on here tonight at the church. Uh, uh, The ladies will have their 7 o'clock Bible study. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com, or you can come and join us. Um, Linda McMillan will be teaching tonight. They are in the book of Colossians. Uh, the men with Pastor Ken, they'll also be meeting at 7 o'clock. We also have our high school and junior high school Bible studies. At the same time, people come for the same worship, and then they just sort of spread out throughout the church building. So uh, bring the whole family. It's really, really a great night. Uh, we're getting ready. Maybe Paula will talk about it a little bit. On Thursday, we're getting ready to uh, start our summer, sweet summer devotion series uh, in, I think, um, two weeks from tonight. So um, that's always real popular, and we invite you to join us for that as well. Okay, that's June 8th. I don't know if that's two weeks from tonight, but June 8th, I was just told, for the Sweet Summer Devotion series. Um, let's go right to some questions, and then we'll see what's going on. I hope you had a really good day yesterday at church. It was really nice. People, More people are starting to come back. And, you know, you just don't realize how much you miss some people. I've had some people so on my heart, you know, and I've been praying for them. And so when I got to hug them yesterday, it was like, where have you been my whole life kind of thing? I, and it just was really, really a good day. Good day. Our first question is from Anonymous. Uh, what is the most effective way to deal with depression? I've struggled for a long time, even though I'm a Christian. Well, Anonymous, the one thing that you've realized and pointed out in your question is that Christians are not immune to depression. You know, I know some people 
think that, well, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be depressed. And I guess theoretically that's true, but we still live in this fallen world and we still got brain struggles and issue struggles and things that come along and break our heart. And uh, I have said on this program before that I think depression is one of the devil's biggest weapons. I think if he can get you sitting still, if he can get you uh, in a place where you're, you're focused just on you and how bad you feel, uh, remember, he's not going to ever have mercy. And he's going to pick those times to pound and pound and pound. And so if you want to know how to deal with it, you've got to get get up and be with Jesus. You've got to move. You've got to move. But it's not just movement for movement's sake. You've got to be with Jesus. Spend some time with him in the Word, in prayer. And I'm not suggesting that Bible reading and prayer is a solution to depression. But the presence of Jesus is. Jesus himself was depressed. Jesus himself, his heart was broken continually. And yet he was always about his father's business. My meat, he said, is to do the will of my father. Well, for you and for me, our meat, and and the main thing, of course, is to do the will of our father in heaven, and that's to be with Jesus. In his presence is the fullness of joy. And since there's joy in his presence, not happiness. It's not going to lift the black cloud of depression uh, miraculously. But you will find joy even in the middle of it. So this is the thing that we've really got to do. We've got to get up. We've got to get moving. We've got to have a direction for our movement, and that's to be in the presence of the Lord. And eventually the power of God will come over you. Now, the problem, Anonymous, is that when we are depressed, even discouraged, depression is a step up from that, of course, but when we are depressed, we don't feel like doing anything. We don't feel like getting out of bed. We don't feel like reading our Bible. We don't feel like taking a walk with Jesus. And the thing is, we've got to discipline ourselves to do what we don't feel like doing. That's how important this issue is. We've got to do it. We've got to fight. We, we, we need to recognize that, spiritually speaking, we're in a fight for our lives. And so we've got to fight back. And I think sometimes, as insensitive as I know this can sound at times, I know that because people have told me, uh, we've got to toughen up. As Christians, we've got to toughen up. And if we'll just fight, then God will take over. Last thought is, do whatever you have to do to take the focus off you and how you feel. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 is where you ought to park. If anything is beautiful, if anything is, is, is trustworthy, if anything is noble, think on these things. And that's the way to, to, to fight. Realize it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle and you've got to fight. Well, Anonymous, I hope that helps a little bit with some direction. Here is a question or a comment, really, uh, from an, uh, Ryan. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, can you pray for Ravi Zacharias? He's very close to death. Um, Ryan, when I got your question this morning, I... I um, looked up, he is, uh, at this point, Ravi is, is unable or at least barely able to speak. Uh, when his family comes around, he just sort of smiles, and I guess there's nothing else that can be done for him. And I've been praying for Ravi uh, Ryan every day. 
Um, and I would encourage the people in this listening audience to do the same thing. Uh, Ravi has had a long run as a, 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 a wonderfully gifted evangelist apologist. Um, he seems to be a man that loves the Lord with all of his heart. Uh, I explained on this program last week when I just heard about his cancer. Uh, maybe it was the end of the week before, but um, uh, he's had a big impact in my life. I've uh, been for maybe the last 15 years um, listening to a lot of the things that he does. Um, and uh, I will be praying for for Ravi and the rest of the audience can as well. You know, this is one of the things that we need to understand. Also, pray for, for RZIM Ministries. Uh, they're effective not just in this country. Uh, they're headquartered in Atlanta. But they have a thriving ministry literally all over the world. Doors open for the, the ministry there um, that, that don't open for regular people. And uh, we need to keep that ministry in prayer. We need to keep that ministry going. Michael Ramsden, um, um, who probably will, will take over the helm of the Atlanta group, Vince Vitale, um, there are just a bunch of them, uh, Abdu Murray. Um, keep them all in your prayers because this is a ministry that's got a lot of life left. And uh, Ravi's legacy, uh, I think, um, will be very, very fruitful. So, Ryan, I pray for him daily and have been for since I first heard. Um, I will miss him very, very much. Thank God for technology because we'll have... Um, the ability to listen to Ravi for a very, very long time. 340-9585, we'd love your calls to start out the week. Mariah said, did Jesus come for Jews, and how can we be saved if that's true? Uh, Mariah, Jesus came to Jews. I think I I had this question last week. Uh, Maybe I didn't. Uh, I'm not seeing it. Okay. Um, Jesus came to the Jews... But, of course, he came for everyone. And we're saved just the way the Jews in Jesus' day were saved, by putting our faith in him. We are saved by grace through faith, the faith not of our own. It's a gift from God. So, Mariah, the, the, the difference is he came to the lost house of Israel, but he came for everybody. And uh, never forget that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, He came for you and he came for me. But in his incarnation, Mariah, he came for Jews, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Jim on line one. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Call today. Good hearing you today. Hi, Jim. Um, hey, I got a question about the book of Job. And, uh, oh, okay. I'm just wondering if you see any comparison here. I have an acquaintance, and he's, he's a good Christian guy, and he's got a dad who's also a Christian. And when he was growing up, and even in his adulthood, his dad would never say anything complimentary about him. But he would brag about him behind his back. And some of his friends would come back <laughs> and say, man, your dad thinks you're... And I, I couldn't help but think of that whenever I was reading God's response to Job in Job chapter 38, where he starts, who is this that darkens my counsel? And so, I mean, Job had some things to repent of, but can you respond to that? I just, I wouldn't have thought that would be God's first sentence out of his mouth, talking to Job. 
I, yeah, Jim, I can do that, and, and, and it's not at all what you think. And I think sometimes we let our experience with earthly fathers uh, sort of color our view of our Heavenly Father, and, and there's, there's uh, nothing even close uh, between our loving Heavenly Father and our earthly fathers. Um, I think before I get into the question, Jim, uh, this is something that we dads need to remember. You know, my, my dad, I think, was proud of me. Uh, I was a baseball player. I played college baseball, and and uh, my dad would work with me. And he never ever said anything nice to me without it being followed by a but with the, with the criticism. And we we dads, especially we Christian dads, we need to do better than that. We need to be sure our children and our wives, by the way, need to know that we love them, that we're proud of them. And, and, and when we talk to them, it can't be just criticism. And we men, you know, well, I'm just trying to make you tougher. I'm just trying to make you better. That's what my dad did. My dad's idea of a good time was to take me to the ballpark and put me in the, in the, the backstop, you know, behind where the home plate is. And he would just pound ground balls at me. I played infield. And he'd pound ground balls at me, one after another, after another, after another. And and for him, it was a good good day. For me, it was just like, come on, Dad, why can't we do something else? And um, we, we need to be really careful. Now, in Job's case, it was completely different. The whole book opens up with God saying, I have no one like him. He's perfect. He's blameless in all of the world. So Job was God's best. Now, I'm going to... Mix some words of Jesus here so that you understand. Too much is given, much is required. And the idea there is much more is required. So Job doing all the right things, serving God with the right heart. Job is probably as close to a New Testament Christian as the Old Testament has. He was looking for that gap between God and man uh, to bridge the, the, the chasm between and and he, he just was looking for the coming of the Lord. I know in that day, I know that my Redeemer lives, and uh, in that day, I will stand with him. Um, but what God was doing was preparing Job. This is, the, this is the reason God allowed this whole thing with Satan and the attacks and the, 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 the ungodly friends that he had. God was preparing Job for a deeper, more up-close-and-personal revelation of God. We get to the end of the book, and Job says, you know, before I'd only heard about you, but now I have seen you. Think about that. Job got to see more of our Heavenly Father than any other Old Testament figure. And so it wasn't God being critical of him at all. God was simply challenging him to walk into that full and complete revelation of God. Now, a couple of things we also need to remember is that Job started out knowing who God was. And he let his circumstances, and then he let the constant criticism of his so-called friends sort of change his mind. And Job went from the, the, the blameless in all of his generation to a man who was influenced by his friends to question the goodness of God. In other words, their ungodly questions persuaded Job that perhaps God wasn't being fair with him. Now, we we don't criticize Job for that because we would all do the same thing. In fact, we all do the same thing. 
But God was simply preparing Job for a revelation of God that nobody else has had until Jesus came, of course. And so it wasn't being critical. It wasn't picking at him at all. God did what was best for Job, what Job needed God to do in order to see God in all of his fullness. And Jim, we're going to get a chance to go to heaven and see Job. And you remember this question that you called in today and asked him, well, well, Job, was it worth it? And just listen to the answer that he'll give. I know that my Redeemer lives. He knows because he saw him. I love Job uh, as a book. It's, it's a tedious book to read, tedious to study. Um, when we went verse by verse through it, Jim, um, some years ago, uh, it, it, it had a profound impact on our church. I never wanted to teach it because I have a tendency to go through the things that I'm teaching. <laughs> I didn't want to go through the things that Job was going through. So, uh, but, but God really blessed our body when we went through that on a verse-by-verse basis. So hope that helps, Jim. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your calls and questions. Mandy says, is it okay to ask God for a sign when you're not sure what to do? Um, Mandy, it's, um, I mean, it's okay, but it's not advisable. Um, You know, Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I think, Mandy, that asking God for signs uh, is a sign of weak faith. I had a similar question to this one as well last week. And, um, you know, people often go to Gideon. Well, Gideon uh, asked God for a sign, in fact, two of them, because his faith was weak, not because his faith was strong. Mandy, one of the ways that God teaches us to grow in our faith, to mature as believers, is that we got to learn to walk by faith and not by sight and so there are times then when God will simply uh, leave us alone for a while. And he wants us to take steps of faith with the right heart, of course. And it'll give him a chance to protect us. So uh, I, I wouldn't advise asking God for a sign. Um, in my younger days as a believer, I asked God for signs and never got any. Uh, what I learned as I matured in the Lord is that I don't need any. And Mandy, if what your concern is that you're doing the right thing, I understand that. But here's what you have to know about God. When you do the wrong thing, but you do it with the right heart, God will protect you. God will protect you. You know, I've got a few minutes. Nobody's on the line holding. And I'll interrupt if somebody is is uh, calls through. But... Um, uh, Mandy, I, I once, you know, I got fixated. I went through a couple of year period of time where I thought, I got to get a building. I got to get a building. And I was really stressing out over the fact that we didn't have a building like other people and our church can't grow. And, you know, just all those things that, that, uh, young and immature pastors go through. Um, and I made a deal, you know, I was a businessman in life before I got saved. I know how to make deals. I made a deal. I bought an, a, an old Albertson's place, made the deal on it. Uh, we were going to have to rent it for a year to finish the lease and then uh, purchase it on, on an agreed buyout. 
And, um, you know, it was uh, 60,000 square feet. And I thought, boy, this is going to be perfect. Um, I got right to the end. I got to the place where we were there to pick up the keys to the building, sign the papers. And when I sat down to sign the papers, it was as though Jesus was in that room. And he was saying, you know, I, I know you mean well, but this isn't me. And there was a change they wanted to make, a small change from their perspective, not from mine. But it was just God saying, look, I got you here. I know you were doing this thinking it was me, but it's not me. And Mandy, if God would have would not have intervened, if, if, if Calvary Chapel depended on me to be successful, we'd have blown it. We wouldn't even be here today. That was not God's plan. It wasn't his will. Um, perhaps my motives weren't right, but my heart was right. I hope that makes sense to you. And God protected me, Mandy, in the same way. You make sure your heart's right with the Lord. You don't have to be right. And every time I say that, I, I tell people, I hope, I hope and pray they understand just how much pressure that takes off all of us in our walk with the Lord. Thank you, Mandy. Here is a question from Les, I think. Let me see. No, this one's not from Les. This is from Brandon from our email inbox. Please explain Jesus's the first will be last and the last will be first concept. What does it really mean? Um, that's in Matthew 19, Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke chapter 13. Um, Brandon, I can do that. You know, um, Jesus came to Israel. They were the first, but they will be the last. Um, you know, they, they, Israel, Jews were the first part of the church, but, but it was a completely different situation than Jews believed that that they were God's chosen people, and 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 uh, what Jesus is saying is, you've got it all wrong. Uh, the first Israel will be last. The last Gentiles uh, will be first. And of course, it was um, um, Gentiles that gave the church the real opportunity in Acts chapter ten to grow. So that's what he's talking about. Sometimes we look at things. Uh, that makes sense to us. And Jesus said, no, you're seeing the wrong thing. And this was simply Jesus saying, look, yes, I came to the lost house of the, or the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but they're going to reject me. He said before he left with uh, his disciples who would be apostles, I've got sheep that are not of this sheepfold. Uh, there are others that are going to come. There were all kinds of Old Testament prophecies about Gentile inclusion. And, um, it would be Gentiles largely that will make up and has always made up the Church of Jesus Christ. So, Brandon, that's what he's talking about there in those passages of Scripture. Thanks for the question. I like those. One more before the break. Les wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, how often do you speak in tongues? Should it be a part of our a big part of our prayer life? Um, Les, I don't have any schedule for speaking in tongues. I. I have the gift of tongues, and I, I, I pray as I feel I'm led by the Spirit. Now, there are some times um, when I'm going to do it. When I'm walking and praying, um, I'm often going to pray in tongues. Um, Sunday mornings, I'm, I'm uh, often praying in tongues. Um, 
I want to know what the Lord wants um, wants me to do and, and how, how he wants me to communicate the message. Um, and, and there's times I need to get my mind off of that, so I use my prayer language. I do not have the gift of interpretation less, so uh, it, I don't know what I'm, I'm praying about, um, but I, I just know by faith that it is um, a gift that allows my relationship with God to be more personal allows it to strengthen. Now, for that reason, I think it ought to be a regular part of our prayer life. You asked if it should be a big part. Um, I think it should be a regular part of our prayer life. So I think it should be something that you do on a regular basis. How often that basis is, is between you and the Lord. But as the Lord leads, as the Spirit is trying to communicate... Um, just just open yourself up. One of the problems with tongues less is that when people get the gift and, and so many new Christians, so many uh, Christians who don't have the gift of tongues, they so fixate on, I want the gift of tongues, I want the gift of tongues. Then when God grants it, they don't use it. And I think like anything else that you don't use, you sort of lose it and it loses its place of influence. Uh, but um, less, I, I I wouldn't trade the gift of tongues. It's the least of all of the gifts, because it's a vertical gift, just me and the Lord. But I wouldn't trade it because there's just too many times when I don't know what to pray for, I don't know what to pray about. So I want the Spirit to do the leading. Um, again, just private, but it ought to be a regular part of your prayer life. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions my next question sent in by email is from henry and he says should we give our entire tithe to the church. Uh, Henry, I'm going to answer the question two ways. First and foremost, we who are New Testament Christians are not under the law of tithing. A tithe means a tenth. Um, we're not under the law of tithing, so we are not obligated to give a tenth of our money to anyone, to the church, to anybody else, you know, in our offerings to the Lord. As New Testament Christians, we owe God everything. You know, imagine an Old Testament guy sitting there saying, okay. And, and Jesus said that the Pharisees did this. They counted out carefully their spices and their mints and their cumin and, and, and just, well, here's one for God, here's nine for me, one for God, nine for me. And they would meticulously do it because they thought they were pleasing the Lord. Well, we do the same thing with our dollars. Okay, God, $10, I got one for you, nine for me. And we think that makes God pleased. Um, we give 
because God gave everything for us. And we give in response to his grace, his unmerited favor. The result of that is we give because we get to, not because we have to. It's a whole new thing. And Henry, the churches that teach the tithe, uh, I I think uh, they're, they're really missing out. Paul and I went to a restaurant one time, and one of my pet peeves, well, I'm a generous tipper. Uh, Paula and I are, are, are very generous. We we uh, we develop relationships with people we go. And we went to a restaurant, and they, they put the tip in for us. Um, they they I, I, and, I'm, and Paula would maybe remove the number, but I think they put like 15%. Um, if you're party of more than, the, the tip was, was um, um, not up to us. And so I got the bill and I said, well, well, why did you put the tip in? And the waiter said to us, well, you know, on big parties, we just need to be sure that we get enough money. And, and you, so that's why we do, we, we put the tip in there. And I gave the person, our waiter, a lesson. I said, let me tell you something. You're happy with this. I was going to give you more. And I think it was a, a woman. She said, well, well, you still could. I said, well, I want you to learn. This is what faith in God is about. When we give God everything that we are, everything that we have. We can't outgive God. And gave me a brief chance to, to witness to her, and I don't think it made sense to her. But Henry, this is something that ought to make sense to every believer. Every believer. We owe God everything. And we should, with thanksgiving, give Him everything. And if we ask Him what He wants us to give and where He wants us to give it, He'll give us the direction that we ask for. Now, I think the gist of your question was, can you split up what you give between the church and, and other things? And of course you can. It's your money. Uh, you can do with it as you want. But, but the thing that we ought to do is ask God what He wants us to do. Now, I am a big believer. People say, well, you're a pastor. Of course, you're a big believer. But the church ought to be the place where you give first. It's the place you're being blessed. It's a place that God has planted you. You have a vested interest in the church and the church thriving. And so, yeah, you should give your offerings. I don't want to use the word tithe. You should give your offerings to the church. Now, that doesn't preclude you asking God if you want to give money elsewhere, God, what about this person who seems to be down on their luck? Or uh, what about and you, whatever your your leading is? And God will give you direction, but it won't come out of the money that you give to the church. So if I could wave a wand, Henry, and get everybody to forget this whole thing of tithing, I'd take the word tithe or tenth out of our vocabulary, and I would just tell Christians, um, seek the Lord. Asking what he wants you to give. It's his money anyway. He'll let you keep most of it for sure. But if you um, ask and want to hear, he may surprise you. And you'll be blessed. Let's go to Belmont, Texas and talk with James on line one. James, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. Um, uh, Hi, James. Thank you. I, I absolutely... Um, I absolutely love listening to you. Uh, the the tide seems like it's so uh, legalistic, and and when God's blessed us with 
the most wonderful gift in the world and everything comes from him. It just seems so, um, I mean, I, sometimes I just wonder why we're uh, not more generous um, with our giving. Anyway, my question, though, uh, although I love that, was in Philippians, because my Sunday school lesson next time is going to be around Philippians 2. Um, Paul was talking to the Philippians on, in verse 17 and said, you know, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was curious about drink offering, and everything that I see seems to show that a drink offering either goes on, it, it goes on something that's burning, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, an altar with um, or a pillar with wood or uh, it might also include the male lamb and so forth. And the two places that I find it, um, the first place, it was really, really cool, and I overlook it every time I've ever read Genesis. Um, But maybe it's because that was about the time I was getting sleepy and fell asleep, always around 35. (laughs) Um, So, you know, God appeared to Jacob and said, you know, your name is Israel. Well, I'm reading this now, and it says in verse 13 of chapter 35 of Genesis, then God went up from him, him being now Israel, in the place where he had spoken to him. And so um, Jacob, or Israel, set a pillar uh, where God had spoken to him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil. Um, I'm assuming that there was wood to fuel it and it was burnt, but there's no mention mm-hmm. of, of a lamb. And then in Leviticus 23, I'm sorry, this is a long question. In it's Leviticus okay, 23, on the, on the Feast of First Fruits, you know, of course, that's Resurrection Day. It's beautifully marked here, a male lamb, no blemish, burnt offering. But also with that, on First Fruit, it says, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, and it describes how much and so forth. Those are the two places where I see, or three, where I see or read about drink offerings. And it's interesting to me that one is where God had come down and then he left after he spoke to Israel. And then the other is on first fruits, Resurrection Sunday being represented, I think, by that, um, by that feast. And then Paul saying that if I should be poured out, is is the drink offering, does that represent um, uh, uh, resurrection, or uh, does it, is it symbolic of the spiritual aspect of the solid form becoming vapor, like we're solid and then we become, I hate to say vapor, but I think you know <laughs> what I mean. Yep. Then, then we leave the shell, and then um, that wisp of breath leaves and, and goes upward toward heaven. Is that what's being represented when they talk about the sacrificial drink offering? Long question. Yeah. Thank, thank you, James. God bless you. And by the way, Proverbs chapter 11, I think it's verse 25, says that a generous man himself will be blessed by God, and, and one who refreshes will himself be refreshed by God. And, and your comment before the question about the giving is perfectly described there. Um, the drink offering is, is, is a very intentional picture. Now, obviously, 
It is a picture of the one Jesus who will come and be poured out like a drink offering. Now, the, the, the intent of the picture, James, is that when you pour water on something that's burning, what you get is steam. In other words, there's nothing of substance left. It's just like you get the sizzle and then the steam and it's all gone. And so that's a picture of what Jesus did for us. And of course, in his resurrection, um, obviously he came back to life. But um, the, 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 the Leviticus passage in particular, uh, the first fruits, um, just think of that, that picture of the, the water being poured out on hot rock or something and just steam, just vapor comes up. But that's a, 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 an instruction for us about our response to his sacrifice for us. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, um, I beseech you, brothers, in, in view of, of God's mercy, in, in view of everything that he's done, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The idea is to hold nothing back. And, and so we've got a picture of Jesus, but it's also an instruction to us about how we should respond to what Jesus has done. So uh, we give God our best, our first fruits, um, but we're not to worry about whether or not um, we're getting anything from it. It's just, Lord, everything I have is yours. I, I belong to you. You can do anything that you want. And um, James, not only in Romans chapter 12 when Paul says that, but when he's writing um, about being poured out, um, the, the version you were reading uh, and said, and if I be poured out, Paul was saying in, in the Greek, he was saying, uh, I am being poured out like a drink offering. There's nothing left. And Paul wanted to use up every bit of grace that God gave him. And he realized that his whole life was, was to be spent doing one thing, and that's sacrificing for the Lord. You know, James... Um, one of the, the, the things that amazed me about the Apostle Paul is that he was shown at the beginning of his walk with Jesus, right at the beginning, all the things that he would suffer. And he said, yes. And that's why he could say things like, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Or he could say, I'm spent, but willing to be spent even more. And that's what the drink offering is. It's a picture of our response. It's a picture first of the, the sacrifice that would come from heaven, and then our response to that drink offering. And it has to be the first fruits, the best we got of our time, our talent, our treasure. It all belongs to the Lord. And, and literally, every day, when we go to bed at night, we, we really shouldn't have anything left. Now, most of us are not completely exhausting ourselves in the service of the Lord. But we all ought to be working toward that end. Great question, James. I love it when you call. Let's go to uh, Cindy online, too, from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for being patient. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I've got Hi, a Cindy. couple things. Hi. One is about the blood in the meat that we're not that we weren't supposed to eat blood in the meat and I grew up on medium rare steak and I think <laughs> I'd gag if I had to eat a piece of well done steak. So I'm you curious <laughs> did that change um when when Peter saw the vision about kill and eat? That's my one question. And my second one, I'm really curious about the vineyard that Noah had. And I'm, I'm wondering, when do you think the first uh, 
barrel wine was produced. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it must have been after the uh, after they were taken out of the garden, because I, I don't know if they'd have vineyards in the Garden of Eden or not. So maybe it was after, and then, you know, I'm, I'm just curious how they ever come up with the idea. And I'm wondering if uh, Noah had cuttings of different plants on the ark, and that's how he was able to plant a vineyard later on. And mm-hmm. and how long after the flood do you think he he did that? So that's been running around in my head since mm-hmm. last Wednesday. I'll get off Thank the phone. Thank you, Cindy. Bye. God bless you. Cindy, thinks through my studies. I love that. Um, the blood and the meat, the, 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 even, even after Gentile inclusion, uh, the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, Cindy, there was a, a meeting to try to bridge the gap between the, the, the Jews who were more legalistic and the Gentiles. And, and uh, one of the things that they, they came up with, we just ask you not to eat meat with blood in it. So we're talking about raw, raw meat. Uh, I think I use the example of of uh, King Saul's uh, men uh, when they had a victory after uh, Saul said, "Until my name is avenged, you nobody can eat," and and, and the the men were ravenous and they started eating raw meat, just just like heathens and pagans did, and that was common in the old world. Um, but it, it was a picture um, because the life of any human, any animal is in the blood. As long as the blood's flowing, there's life. Um, God's simply saying we, we need to respect life, so don't eat meat with the blood in it. And what they mean, don't eat stuff that hasn't died yet. Now, it doesn't mean that we can have a rare or medium rare steak. I'm with you. I, 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 I can't imagine chewing on a, a, a well-done steak. You, you know, you go get a good steak somewhere, and you can ruin it by cooking it too much. That's not what he's talking about at all. The animal has to be killed, cleaned, bled, and prepared, cooked. And so that's what he was talking about. Um, with regard to the vineyard, we don't really have any questions, but we, we can assume that a great deal of time passed uh, after the flood, after Noah was able to go out into the world and, and start all over. Uh, because the, the world, after a cataclysmic flood, for a long time would be like a wilderness. So we can assume that it was quite a long period of time before he was able to plant and and the seeds would grow and then the grapes would produce wine. So we're not given the time frame, but it certainly wouldn't be something that happened quickly. Now, one of the things we know is that um, uh, his sons came in when he had fallen drunk and uh, and Ham, of course, was was quick to trumpet his sin and uh, basically calling his dad a hypocrite. Um, and, and he paid the price for it. I'm going to talk about the back half of that in our study this Wednesday night. But we don't have any details, Cindy, on how long or what else was going on. Um, but you can bet it was quite some time before the ground would produce again. Now, as to how Noah would know to do it, um, remember Noah had a pretty close relationship with the Lord. And I'm sure when the ground was ready, God gave him instructions about what to do so, so that they could thrive. And, and uh, Noah falling drunk is just an example of how we humans can take something that God intends to use to bless us and we can pervert it and turn it into something that causes us 
uh, to fall. So, good question, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. Sean asks, when Christians approve of homosexuality, are they rejecting Jesus or are they losing their salvation? Um, Sean, that's a question that that only God knows the answer to. I think uh, what I can say definitively is that when Christians approve of homosexuality, they're rejecting the character of Jesus. Uh, I think we all go through some struggles with some issues, especially if we're not really, really studying the Word of God deeply. You know, how could God condemn somebody for being who they are? Uh, I get that question all the time. Well, well, they're born that way. Well, they're not born that way, but that's not the point. The point is, um, th- there's a lot of us who just don't understand the heart, the character, the holiness of God. So, when a Christian approves of homosexuality, they're rejecting the character of God. Now, I would, if given the opportunity, tell somebody like this to examine whether or not they're really saved at all. I mean, we don't get to change who Jesus is, and basically that's what we're trying to do when we say, well, I don't think we should, we should condemn people for homosexual behavior. I mean, they're just loving somebody. What's so bad about that? Well, we're turning on Jesus, um, and whether or not that reaches to losing their salvation. Once saved, you can't be unsaved. Once covered by the blood, you can't be uncovered by the blood. But I think it really reveals, uh, Sean, whether or not somebody really is covered by the blood. I, I would tell somebody who disagrees with the Lord on issues like this, I would say, you know, you need to really decide if you're really saved at all. How can you, a Christian, disagree with the Christ? And I, I want to be that direct with them, Sean, because I don't think we think of that. You know, we kind of look at Jesus like, well, he saved me, and we're a grace, and God loves everybody, and so why can't we be loving to everybody? And our first responsibility, we often forget, is to be loving toward Jesus, to be faithful toward Jesus, to choose him over the world. We live in this world, Paul says, but we're not of this world. And anybody who uh, claims to be Christian that approves of or practices homosexuality, then you're in a situation where you got to say, um, are you more loyal to this world or are you loyal to the king of this world? You can't have it both ways. You don't get to choose. And I think we forget that sometimes a great deal. Here's a question from our mobile app. This one from Linda. Yesterday you talked about deacons and deaconesses. I know you have elders in your church which are male. Could women be elders too? Linda, if you remember the earlier Bible study in elders, um, that is a um, 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 overseer is the, the best translation of that word. And that refers specifically to what we call the pastor of the church. I know in our church culture, Linda, we have pastors and we have elders and we have deacons. Um, but but in the first century church, it wasn't that way. They had what they called overseers. In some um, translations, it's translated elders. Um, but but that refers to the office of the pastor, and no, women cannot be pastors. We got one other principle that we have to deal with here, and that's leadership. 
Um, we have elders in, in the United States, in the West, in large part, uh, because we have to comply with the law. I've got the greatest group of elders. I mean, uh, my two original elders have been with me the whole time. I mean, so we're talking our 25th birthday is coming up at the end of this month. Uh, and I mean, they've been here nearly the whole time within uh, the, the first year um, before they came. After that, they've been doing the work in leadership. Uh, but Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. So that restricts leadership in the church to males. Again, it's just roles. It, it doesn't, it's not a comment on women being qualified or unqualified. It says nothing about that. It, that's just the way it is. And of course, in First Timothy chapter 2, when we're talking about that, what we realize there is that God goes all the way back to Genesis to set the foundation of why that's the way. As a result of the fall, it's not something that is um, um, a good thing. It's 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 a curse, and and um, we've got to do uh, what it, the church belongs to Jesus. We've got to do what Jesus tells us to do. So we know there were deaconesses. So we know that the office of deacon, it's not a position of authority, it's a position of service. So we know that um, the first century church, uh, under apostolic direction, had deaconesses, females. And so uh, the same thing is not true about uh, deacons, the office of deacon. Uh, not. I told the church yesterday, Linda, that, that we don't have uh, the office of deacon at our church. Uh, we got a whole bunch of people deking. Um, um, we got a, a pastor's discipleship class, sixty to seventy people, that are um, that, that are always doing the work of deacons um, in our church. Um, but they do it without a title, and I think that's absolutely beautiful. It demonstrates their heart, and those men and women are people who who demonstrate how trustworthy they are. And you know, I've just got so many people that that um, I, I trust with my life. And it is a privilege and a pleasure to watch people grow in the Lord. So, Linda, that's the difference. Deacons are not a position of authority in the sense that they're making decisions for the church. Um, but the, the pastors or the overseers, of course, are. And in our church culture, because we've got to comply with, with government laws, we need a board of directors. They're my elders in the church that puts them in a position of leadership. So no, that office is reserved for um, the men. hope that makes sense to you, Linda. Thank you very, very much. Well, I don't even think I have time for another question right now, so we're coming up to the end of the program. I want to remind you again tonight at 7 o'clock, our men's, uh, and women's and high school and junior high school Bible studies are at 7 o'clock. Uh, ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com uh, at 7 o'clock. But if you would love to join us, it's always better to be here. And uh, we look forward to seeing Linda McMillan is teaching tonight. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Appreciate the phone calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Hallelujah.